years come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times, somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago just to up and leave it A few weeks back on our social, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever social media channels, we posed a question about On The Wing podcast. And that question was, what do you, the listeners, the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members, supporters, the Upland Nation want to hear in future episodes of On The Wing podcast? And the answer was overwhelming in uh, the consistency of responses, people want more habitat reports and hunting forecasts um, as we head into the hunting season. So you know, you, we're giving you exactly what you asked for over the course of the next couple of weeks, starting um, with this particular episode as we preview the first pheasant hunting openers in uh, a a handful of states coming up in early October. Uh, so joining me for today's episode of On the Wing podcast, we have Renee Tamala, senior field representative and frequent contributor to On the Wing podcast. Um, she's going to be talking to us about North Dakota and Montana, who are the first two states to open up. Uh, Tanner Bruce, who's punching his frequent flyer card on the podcast here. He was on just very recently during Build a Wildlife Area Week, um, talking about the Howard K. Vincent Waterfall Production Area um, project. Uh, Tanner's a state coordinator for, for Minnesota, and he'll be previewing the Minnesota pheasant opener and making his inaugural podcasting debut uh a guy i consider a a friend uh for sure in the pheasants forever family and uh, we have something uh special in common which we'll share when when we dive in a little deeper matt gottlub uh the south dakota state coordinator in the pheasant capital of the country undisputed and still champion south dakota He's giving me the thumbs up, and everybody else is shaking their head. Uh, go ahead, Tanner. Just where's the love for Minnesota? Bob? I, I love Minnesota, but uh, but in this in this battle, South Dakota earns the title, and we could debate that. That'll be a good um, opportunity for fodder because I know Renee uh, will stand up and defend North Dakota too. Uh, all right. So let's, let's start with a little bit of around the horn introductions. Um, we'll start with Renee. Um, welcome back Renee. It's probably been, I guess it was the rooster road trip was the last time you were on, but you, you were on a bunch of them then. Yeah, I think it's been since Montana. Thanks for having me on again. Um, yeah, I'm Renee Tamala, uh, Senior Field Representative for Pheasants Forever in North Dakota, and I have the privilege of two Northeastern Montana chapters as well. So, been on with PF for, I think, six years now. Um, we're over the six-year mark. Have a two-year-old German wire hair. Um, and yeah, I don't know what else you want to know. <laughs> well, well, let's talk about that two-year-old uh, German wire hair. Um, folks really got to know Quill um, through the Rooster Road Trip and through, um, you've been on a couple episodes of The Flush. And the last time you were on The Flush, um, tragedy struck. So if folks don't know Quill's story, um, maybe if you're comfortable sharing a little bit about the story and the journey that Quill's been on, um, spoiler alert there's there's smiles here um but maybe you can tell us a little bit for folks that are don't know but also folks that are keeping keeping up with quill and keeping up with you what's the latest absolutely there's a ton we have a ton of really good people in our corner so what you said is absolutely true so back in december of 2022 Quill and I were pheasant hunting in southwest North Dakota, and he had a traumatic injury while we were out in the field. He fell about 50 feet off of a cut bank, 
and fractured a couple spinal vertebrae um, and then ac uh, broke his front leg. And so fast forward to today, he has a plate in his front leg with eight screws and he uh, gets around really well. So if you would have asked December me if you thought that we would be in the field, I don't know. I would have thought it looked a lot different, but these days he's getting around really well. Um, he's back up to his regular old quill antics, so <laughs> AKA driving me really crazy. <laughs> but, but also finding birds. Finding birds. So we uh, made our debut back into the uh, grouse fields this fall, and it's been really, really good. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, I know something that's a very emotional um for you you know our, our bird dogs are like our family and uh this has been an arduous journey for you but thankfully there's a lot of positivity coming out um this end and it you know as a person who's experienced um you know the ultimate tragedy in the field with my bird dog um passing away um it, it, she for folks that don't know the story and i had a one and a half year old short hair who ruptured a carotid artery when she ran into a limb um, grouse hunting, rough grouse hunting in 2012. And she died within minutes in my arms. And um, I know how hard that can be. I also know how special a community we have amongst our coworkers, our members and people that love bird dogs as much as we do. And, um, I felt the love and the compassion when I lost my pup and I've seen it through social media um, directed at you and at Quill and it's absolutely wonderful um, to see you come out the other end and it, being able to enjoy a new season with Quill. So if folks want to um, hear the whole story, I'll direct you to The Flush um, podcast with hosted by Travis Frank, Renee's been on. Um, about a month ago, I'd say, right, Renee, that you kind of recap the whole story. And there's a television episode on this season of The Flush that um, captures this experience as well. So, um, yeah, it's it's a very traumatic story that has um, kind of uh, triumphed at the end. So it's um, it's pretty cool. So thank you for sharing that. Um, all right, let's let's boost the energy. Uh, Tanner, let's talk hot lunch, baby. Once hot again, lunches. Uh, hot lunches. <laughs> the guy who coined hot lunch, and for folks that don't know what that means, give them give them a hit, Tanner. What's it mean? If you're just looking at a feedlot, um, livestock will consume grain. Uh, they don't utilize all the grain. Uh, it ends up in their waste, and uh, <laughs> our game birds can frequent there in the winter and uh, enjoy a hot lunch. So just to correct you for a second, though, Bob, it might have been Matt Morlock that coined that. Uh, it might have been Matt Morlock, but well, either, I'll take it. Yeah. All right, Tanner, Tanner, you're the Minnesota State Coordinator. Give us the state coordinator. Give us the um, two-minute overview of where you're from what you do if folks haven't listened to you in the last last uh few episodes you've been on let's start off with renee i'm glad you and quill can continue to make memories in the field um just to kind of recap that but yes tanner brew state coordinator in minnesota um i live near marshall minnesota so i'm in the heart of, of pheasant country here in southwest minnesota uh, originally from worthington minnesota um pheasants forever really has been a part of my entire life. One of my first, uh, I believe it was a Ruger 1022 at the Nobles County Pheasants Forever mm. Banquet. Um, so for those of you that know Scott Rawl, know Nobles County, uh, that's kind of where I grew up and, and kind of, again, been a part of my entire life. Uh, within Pheasants Forever, I've been here for about 10 years. Um, in Minnesota, we've got a huge team, an extremely strong team, and great chapters. Um, through that, we're able to work on both public land and private land. So on the public land side, we're working on acquiring, restoring, enhancing public land. On the private land side, we've got a bunch of folks out there working directly with landowners, uh, delivering conservation on private lands. Um, here in Marshall, I'm looking at my uh, four-month-old lab sleeping right now, uh, right next to me. I also outside have a nine-year-old lab 
who I'd say within the last two weeks, they've now become friends. They weren't mm. friends uh, for the first several months. I don't know if there was some, I don't know what the animosity was between the two of them, uh, but they didn't really like each other. So uh, along with that, live with my wife, Heather, uh, our inside dog, Socks, and I've got two boys, uh, Bo and Wyatt, six and eight years old. And we've got eight chickens and two ducks that provide <laughs> us uh, with our groceries. So, and Outside of that, nothing's happening. <laughs> no, nothing. Nothing really. Um, 90% of my hunting's on public lands. I'm a public public land hunter. Um, can't wait for, for pheasant season to open up. Um, and rounding out our uh, early pheasant opener preview episode is uh, Matt Gottlob, uh, the South Dakota state coordinator um matt is your your first time on the podcast so i'm gonna to welcome you and uh let you give a introduction of who you are to our audience yeah thanks a lot for having me on bob yeah as you mentioned i am the state coordinator here in south dakota uh i grew up on the east side of the state on a family farm there outside salem south dakota mm-hmm. Uh, my parents are the fourth generation to live there, and uh, I'll probably eventually be there someday as the fifth, and my kids as the sixth, but uh, for the time being, I call the Black Hills home. Uh, still here where I've lived for the last uh, just over seven years, so I came on with Pheasants Forever here in western South Dakota in 2016. Started in June working on the Sage Grouse Initiative out here. So prior to that, uh, again, grew up on the east side of the state. I attended Black Hill State University out here in Spearfish for an environmental biology degree, and then uh, bounced around the state working for South Dakota Game Fish and Parks, uh, doing various things from collaring bighorn sheep and mountain lions and elk, and doing aerial surveys out here, as well as work for Game Fish and Parks in Sioux Falls, doing deer and pheasant surveys there before going up to South Dakota State University in the spring of 2013, hmm. um, where I worked on my uh, master's in wildlife and fisheries there. So um, lived and worked in South Dakota my entire life. So pretty cool to have it come full circle from being a field biologist to now uh, being a state coordinator and overseeing a team of 28 staff here across the state. So we have 17 farm bill biologist positions here that work directly with farmers and ranchers on voluntary conservation programs such as, you know, CRP and EQIP. And then also have eight habitat specialists that work full time uh, along with Game Fish and Parks managing some of our public lands here in the state. And then have a couple other specialty positions with a precision egg specialist, a monarch biologist, as well as a R3 and veterans outreach coordinator. <laughs> So I really got a very uh, diverse staff here uh, that helped meet the needs of our um, landowners and sportsmen across the state of South Dakota. Hmm. And do you have pups at home? I am currently between dogs. So I've uh, I've always been a lab guy and um, also have had some uh, poor luck with health and uh, accidents recently. Hmm. So a few years back had a, year and a half old lab just coming into our own developed kidney disease uh really a rare case so um that was a heartbreaker and then the the pooch after that um he was an oaf (laughs) his parents were uh, 60 and 65 pounds and he ended up being uh 95 so uh but after a couple years he he had an accident as well and kind of long series of events there but uh yeah currently without a hunting dog and um can't wait to get back to it so my uh my three-year-old daughter and one-year-old son keep us uh my wife and i very busy so uh yeah haven't haven't made the opportunity happen yet to get another pup but uh definitely be in the near future here well, in, in full disclosure, so so Matt and I, we, we chatted before the podcast. I made sure he was comfortable me sharing this. And, and it, it, you know, it's a little bit outside of the the norm of a pheasant hunting preview, but I thought it, it'd be beneficial. Um, so first couple of state, or not state meetings, team meetings together, Matt and I would see each other and 
um, we'd look on each other's belt, so keep your head out of the gutter, but we'd see uh, on, on our belts, we each had an insulin pump. And, uh, well, you know, and <laughs> one type 1 diabetic generally can recognize another one pretty quickly. It's like, oh, that's not a pager he's wearing. That's an insulin pump. So it's, um, it's something where over the years, Matt and I have developed a pretty um, special friendship just through the connection of both being uh, type 1 diabetics um, and hardcore hunters, which is a little bit of a challenge. Um, if any, I'm sure there's listeners out there that, you know, have kids that are, have juvenile diabetes. Um, I happen to got diabetes adult onset of type one diabetes. I, I developed it at 26 years of age. <laughs> um, I think Matt, if I recall correctly, you, you were at 26 as well or pretty close, right? Correct. Yeah. Right there at 26. So I was in the middle of grad school and, uh, yeah, it popped up. So no family history or anything, just, uh, me neither. And, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 just, it's just the, random, right? Like, yeah, I was completely healthy yeah. drinking beer like every other 26 years. Or so. <laughs> and, uh, yep. well, you know, next thing you know, like you go into the doctor's office and they test your blood and you're like, Oh yeah, you're a diabetic. How long have you been a diabetic? I don't see that on your chart. <laughs> it's like, well, I guess three seconds I've been a diabetic because I didn't know that either. <laughs> but it it's a it's a major curveball when you're out hunting, isn't it, Matt? That it is, yeah. And it uh, and when I actually kind of self-diagnosed, uh, have family, uh, both immediate and extended family uh, in the healthcare field, and it was right under all of their noses, and they didn't even really recognize hmm. it. So it's. Yeah, it's pretty interesting how how that can happen, but yeah, it certainly leads to a set of challenges. And you know, I've been fortunate. Um, technology has certainly aided, even in my oh yeah, ten years now, I guess, dealing with it. So it uh, certainly goes a long ways, and there's certainly great tools out there as far as the continuous glucose monitors, and even for the uh, kind of peace of mind for my family as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I can be. Um, across the state, across the country, or across the world, and um, via Bluetooth through my phone, it's able to communicate and share what my levels are so they know um, that I can be safe out there and don't have to worry about me, especially, you know, in those instances where we find ourselves a long ways from civilization and uh, at times alone. So, yeah. Yeah, certainly takes a level of planning as far as, you know, making sure we have, you know, for me, I personally, um, between Gatorade and like apple juice, that type of stuff I have on me all the time, as well as fruit snacks, because it's easy to reach for a candy bar. But uh, I've I've noticed even at 36 here that my metabolism <laughs> is not what it once was. So Testify, we'll, brother. We'll, yeah. So, yeah, certainly try and reach for the uh, healthier snacks. And, yeah, just at those times when you're, you're, you know, because you're out and you're working hard mm -hmm. hiking, and uh, if you're fortunate to have success in whatever you're chasing, you'll have added weight that you're carrying. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, certainly uh, adds a set of challenges, but it certainly hasn't uh, hasn't held me back. So yeah. it just takes a little more planning and uh, some contingencies built in. Yeah, I. I and thank you very much for sharing some of that. I mean, no, that's that's very personal. And, but I've I've shared that through blogs and different things over the years, and it's really wonderful when people with type one diabetes, particularly youngsters that are interested in hunting, reach out and like ask for you know how do I do this and can I can I still be a bird hunter? You know, because it is it, it's amazing how much of a workout it truly is how many how many carbs you burn on a day of hunting busting cattails or something and there's some challenges because i'm with you i carry generally gatorade or grape juice i think you said apple juice i go grape but uh it's something that that's a you know unlike a candy bar it's a little bit quick intake on the sugar um the downside that i've learned especially living in the um Minnesota and hunting cold weather. I've been in the middle of a cattail slough and reached for my Gatorade and haven't 
had it frozen solid before, like three miles away from the truck. And that's a little bit scary. But um, so I've learned a lesson or two that way. But we won't we won't go any further into the diabetes talk. But I hope that there's some folks out there, um, you know, youngsters or even um, older that, you know, if you have any um, looking for any sort of hacks when it comes to it, please feel free to reach out. Uh, Bob S. at pheasantsforever.org. I take uh, great pride in trying to share what I've learned and keep people enjoying the outdoors no matter what sort of challenges are put in their way. Um, All right. I want to give a shout out as we transition to the um, state-by-state forecasts here. Um, Big shout out to Onyx, um, Onyx Hunt. They're a proud national sponsor of both Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. They're a sponsor of this podcast. They donate to all sorts of our habitat initiatives, including the PATH program in South Dakota, the Howard K. Vincent Waterfall Production Area in uh, southern Minnesota, right on the um, Iowa border. Um, Onyx is just, they step up every time we ask them to participate in something. And they're stepping up for you, the listener, um, offering 20% off your Onyx membership if you use the code PFQF at checkout at onyxhunt.com. Again, that's co- that code is PFQF. They'll give you 20% off and they'll donate a portion of your purchase back to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Wildlife Habitat mission. So thank you very much to Onyx. All right, let's dive in. We'll start with uh, Montana and North Dakota. Um, both states have the distinction of being the first out of the gates with pheasant openers. And uh, we'll go to, to Renee. Now, in clarity here, as we record the end of September, this podcast will air on October the 11th. So we're recording right before um, Montana opens, right before the resident opener in North Dakota. Um, so... What we'll ask Renee is a, to just speak to, as a North Dakota resident, what things look like, not knowing exactly, based on the opener hasn't taken place at the time of this recording, but it will have taken place when you are listening to it. But Renee's been out in the field chasing Sharpies and Huns, and uh, uh, let's start with Habitat, Renee. How, how do things look in North Dakota when you've been out and about? I do want to be clear that you're letting the best state go first, right? <laughs> and here we go. Here we go. So here we I go. hear South Dakota squawking and Minnesota squawking, but like North Dakota's, <laughs> yeah, number one. Okay. <laughs> um, cover habitat-wise is really good out here. Um, we had record-breaking snowfall in 2022-2023 winter. Um. Bismarck had up about 100 inches of snow, which I think my back still hurts from. So we, uh, <laughs> we've had really good moisture, although we did have some drought conditions still over the summer in different parts of the state. Um, but despite all the snow, uh, given those, some of those drought conditions, covers definitely in better shape in some parts of the state than others. Uh, speaking in particular, the southern two-thirds of North Dakota Overall, for grouse, even here centrally, uh, it's been pretty good cover. I've been pleased with it, at least for grouse, but definitely bumping into some uh, sharp, or not just sharp tails and huns, but pheasant broods, um, a bunch out Mm -hmm. on the landscape too. And uh, always the hope is that the good cover that we have right now will carry us through into uh, good winter cover and then help us come out of spring in really good shape too. But I think the bird is out of the bag that it's a damn good year here in North Dakota. Uh, We haven't overlapped with that prime pheasant territory a whole lot while we've been out for grouse and huns so far in September in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was just the beginning of September that we were flushing broods of pheasants that were just barely capable of flight. So there's Mm -hmm. definitely a lot of young birds out on the landscape. I think, um, hatchier birds are going to be a pretty common occurrence, which 
is a good thing too. Hopefully they'll just boost <laughs> numbers uh, going into next spring. Um, on paper, things look really good out here in North Dakota. Our game and fish department does a really phenomenal job of conducting surveys and then turning that information out to the public. And that coupled with firsthand reports, um, it's all really easily accessible information from game and fish. Um, it's an invaluable reference to lean into when you're planning your trips, especially if you are coming from out of state. Um, but if we're gonna talk numbers in particular, um, spring crowing counts, which are conducted by Game and Fish, uh, were up 30% statewide, which is a really great way to kick off the summer. Mm -hmm. And then late summer roadside counts, which are also done by Game and Fish, showed a statewide increase in all three of our upland bird densities and the reproductive rates, um, which is really good for us to hear. Uh, so it's going to be uh, comparable to 2022, if not better, um, higher numbers. And 2022 is a really, really good fall out here. Um, more specifics, pheasants are up an average of 61% across the state, which is huge. Uh, the Northwest and the Southwest saw the most increase while the Northeast was down. Um, not a ton of prime pheasant habitat up there, but still there nonetheless. And then brood rise, talking about those younger, hatchier birds, uh, the state is up around 70% overall. And again, that's with the Northwest and the Southwest carrying the team there. They had an increase of 91% brood wise, which mm. is astronomical. But um, mm -hmm. also for, I uh, got to slip in the Hungarian partridge and the grouse. Uh, grouse are up 116%. And Hungarian partridge are tied with an all-time high that hasn't occurred since 1992, and they're up 200% from last year, <laughs> yeah. which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, those numbers really are crazy when you think about it. I mean, it, it, we were all dreading what the winter of 2022 into 2023 was going to have as an impact on those adult birds. We were lots of snow, polar vortex, and then North Dakota in particular got hammered late into the, um, into the spring. It was like an April snowstorm, right? That was just massive. I remember, I think Emily Spolier and uh, Dickinson was posting, were posting photos that she couldn't even get out of her door because the snow was so high. And then you're thinking, oh, geez, this is going to bleed into nesting season. And actually the reverse happened. It, things greened up, created great nesting cover, spurred insect production, production, and then things dried out and made for almost ideal nesting conditions and as you mentioned 61 percent 200 percent 116 percent those are not numbers that i recall seeing in state reports um in the 20 years i've been here no it's it's gonna be a really really good fall and yeah you're right nesting wise it definitely got pushed back on the calendar with the snow um, but it, another caveat that it makes is um surveys conducted by game and fish roads were not that accessible with all of that snow and mm. so it kind of skews your survey numbers but all in all i mean we're in pretty darn good shape the the best shape yeah. we've been in bird wise for quite some time i know that the majority of your chapters and your coverage is in north dakota um, you also have a little bit of Montana. What what have you seen or heard about um, numbers in Montana uh, from from your chapters and your volunteers uh, on the other side of the border? Mostly so far, really good rumblings about grouse. I've heard it's kind of lights out uh, on the eastern side of the state for grouse. Um, haven't heard too many things on the pheasant side of the world, to be honest with you. I uh, can't speak to it as much just because I reside here in North Dakota, but um, grouse-wise, I assume if they're doing really well, then pheasants are probably following suit with them as well. If you follow Instagram, there's a lot of sharp tails in Montana, right? <laughs> uh, people are having a lot of success. Um, 
North Dakota is one of those states where there's a fair number of banquets um, happening in the fall, correct? There is, yeah. I'd say about half of our chapters here host fall banquets, and a lot of them do try to capitalize on not only the good energy around pheasant opener and pheasant seasons, but also the non-resident hunter traffic. Um, Mm -hmm. So both on our regular October 7th opener and then non-resident opener on the 14th as well. So folks, um, one theme we want you to take home is when you are traveling to some of these destination states, North Dakota being one of them, please check out pheasantsforeverevents.org before you head um, head to North Dakota, before you head to South Dakota, Kansas. Uh, a lot of these destination pheasant hunting states have a lot of banquets and we'd love for you to visit those banquets when you're in their communities help contribute to the habitat cause and and really be a part of the upland community in those places where you hunt it makes a a huge difference and uh you never know. You could meet some terrific friends um, that you you know last a lifetime, and you might even get some doors open to you for new places to go. Um, but undoubtedly, you'll meet people that share your passion for the outdoors. So pheasantsforeverevents.org. Any particular banquets you want to point people to in North Dakota, Renee? Absolutely. Uh, so we have banquets coming up on October 14th in Tioga, Dickinson, and Garrison. And then on the 21st of October, we're going to be having great nights in Cullum and Braddock. And then Jamestown on the 27th and wrapping it up in Ashley down in the southeast on November 4th. So a ton of potential yet on the calendar for a really fun evening with good people supporting our local chapters. Cool. Pheasantsforeverevents.org to buy tickets ahead of time. Um, any of those banquets you suspect people can roll up to the event or should they always buy them ahead of time? Because you never know if they're going to be sold out. Always helpful for us in planning and uh, to get you in quicker at the door. But we'll, uh, we're not too crazy about turning people away if we don't have to. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, pheasantsforeverevents.org. We'll bounce to another October 14th opener. Um, Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes. Uh, and more than 10,000 pheasants. More than 10,000 pheasants. Um, Tanner Bruce, Minnesota preview, a state that, you know, I, I mentioned North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas as destination states. Minnesota isn't generally thought of as a destination state for people to travel. It probably should be. Um, it should be. It, honestly, it should be, um, but it isn't. So I think there's only a handful of fall banquets in Minnesota. Uh, but let's, let's start with the conditions report and the forecast for, for Minnesota. Take us there. Yeah, Bob, as far as habitat conditions go, um, we are dry in Minnesota, uh, drought-like conditions, uh, but that didn't impede, you know, the growth, the habitat growth, the vegetation growth leading up to the drought that we're in currently. So overall, um, from my experience, and again, a lot of that's in Southwest Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, habitat looks great. Um, we got rain when we needed it. Uh, now it's dried up a little bit. And you know, if, if we just take a step back and look at habitat as a whole in Minnesota, our CRP acres stayed pretty consistent um, over this past year. And in addition, you know, this is just a rough number, but if you look at easements that were added on the landscape, if you look at waterfall production areas that were added in the, on the landscape and wildlife management areas, we're looking at six, 7,000 acres of permanently protected land that have been added hmm. in the last year in Minnesota uh, with probably five to 6,000 acres of that open to the public. So um, in combination with that, you know, we also have walk-in access, uh, 250 sites, 29,000 acres of additional private lands that are now open to the public uh, through the walk-in access program. So um, overall, I would say our habitat conditions are looking great. Uh, If you would have told me six months ago, eight months ago, when I was on a podcast with you, Bob, talking about the polar vortex, um, <laughs> that we'd be sitting here in Minnesota with a, a increase, a moderate increase overall in the state, mm-hmm. according to the Minnesota DNR roadside counts, 
of uh, increase of 10%, I would have maybe told you you were crazy. Mm -hmm. But it just speaks to, you know, what habitat does for the bird and how resilient pheasants are on the landscape. So, um, yeah, increase moderately by 10%. Yeah, I so I ended my pheasant season in Minnesota in Brown County, um, Sleepy Eye area, and we did a podcast right after that hunt with um, Jared Wicklin and Kang Yang. And Kang literally had to pull me out of a snowbank. <laughs> uh, uh, like literally, literally had to pull, help me out of a snowbank because I would still be, well, I'd be thawed by now, but it wouldn't have been a good scene. Um, but you're right. Like the, the birds are just so darn resilient. I, I was really depressed driving away thinking, how are these things going to survive? But here we are. Make it. Ten make it to the next year 10% up statewide and i know you're you're burying a statistic that i'm not going to let you hey i'm not going to no, let you no you're not going to throw out the 101% in southwest minnesota bob i'm not going <laughs> to give you that you just did you just did uh, all right the southwest ex- region of yeah, ex- the south the southwest region of the state uh the index grew 101% um, it's just it, which, these numbers, like you know, Renee mentioning 200, 116, you know, Minnesota and the Southwest, which is honestly the the capital counties of the state for for pheasant numbers, a hundred and one percent. These numbers are just unheard of. And West Central, they also got hammered by snow, um, up thirty eight percent. Wow! So not a not a small number. Um, Another interesting thing, and I don't know if you've looked at the entire roadside survey, but gray partridge. I saw that. Increased substantially Mm -hmm. in both southwest and the northwest regions of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And to the tune of uh, 572% in northwest Minnesota. So that, that one is shocking, but we also have to put that one in perspective. It was like that number was really low really low yeah right like yeah. when when renee says north dakota huns are up 200 percent, that's eye-popping because north dakota huns had a resurgence the year prior like north dakota hun it's like i'd consider it it's probably top two hun state in the country right like montana and north dakota have more huns than anywhere else probably somewhere in that area and for them to jump 200% is like, holy mackerel. Minnesota jumping 500% is like, well, there were, right? Like on it, there were a few thousand maybe around. So when they jump 500%, let's keep it in perspective. Nevertheless, when it jumps 500%, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an eye-opener. I'm still, I'm still kind of hearing that North Dakota's winning this race a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to give that to you, Renee. But, um, well, it certainly does say, on Huns. Yes. What I've been hearing from people in Minnesota, um, just kind of pheasants everywhere, mm-hmm. honestly. A um, lot of comments saying just tons of pheasants. People are seeing them when they're out, you know, walking their dogs, going for wildlife cruises, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of pheasants and I, I can speak from last weekend uh, my dad took my two boys out for waterfall opener that's a whole nother story that I can't even begin to start with but um, you know my my nine-year-old lab he he wore himself out but he went from a white lab to a black lab because of the mud because <laughs> we're because we're a little bit dry but uh, it was just kind of interesting the amount of birds that we heard mm. roosters crowing and he would take a pause from the duck hunting experience spin his head over and think about running over mm-hmm. there after that rooster. So, um, heard a lot of, heard a lot of birds when we were out there too. Uh, banquets. I know that, uh, Glacial Ridge chapter right up in Pope County on Min- Lake Minnewaska has their banquet every year, the, um, the night of the opener. So that yep, is, um, absolutely. October 14th tickets on sale now, pheasantsforeverevents.org. Um, are there any others in the fall? There are, there are not, and I confirmed with our, our regional reps as well, um, Chance and Will, just to make sure, but no other events this fall. Um, but I will throw out there, there are a lot of youth hunts. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a few women hunts, some veterans hunts, and, and other reasons to be engaged with your local chapters. So give me, you know, I, 
As I led into Minnesota, I said it's not really known as a destination state for pheasant hunters. What's your impression? Why is that? I don't, I'm guessing it's because we have the Dakotas next door, mm-hmm. honestly. I don't want to give these two uh, <laughs> too much cred, but we have the Dakotas and, you know, it, people kind of pass right through it. But I can tell you those that do stop generally have success and generally come back. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. I think it's the Dakotas right next door. And if you're coming from Wisconsin or Michigan or Illinois to drive an extra couple hours to get to the Dakotas, they also have by and large, more public land, um, particularly in the walk-in programs. Like when you think about plots in North Dakota or the walk-in in, in South Dakota, I think they're, they're maybe not a million acres any longer, um, but they're just, they're close to a million acres of walk-in acres. Um, Minnesota, I think walk-in program. Go Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, it's currently actually 1.48 million acres just in the walk-in area access program in South Dakota. So that is the reason why a lot of people will just keep the gas pedal down a little longer and keep going. Because they know there's going to be lots of places. Minnesota, I think that walk-in access program is somewhere in the 40,000 acres compared to over a million in in South Dakota. So that's the difference in Minnesota is there's a lot more permanent public access through water well wildlife management areas and probably equal number of waterfall production areas as the dakotas but um i'm guessing that's part of it is a little bit of the novelty of being in one of the dakotas and in the assurance of public places to go um but people that i've steered over the years like yeah you maybe want to try the southwest minnesota they haven't been disappointed no we are more than just 10,000 lots. <laughs> All right. We, uh, we'll go to what's the state that's coined the term the pheasant capital, the nation's pheasant capital. Matt, tell us about uh, South Dakota, who also has a resident and non-resident opener. Resident opener, I believe, is October 14th. Non-resident opener. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And non-resident opener is the 21st. Um, Tell us about uh, what folks can expect if they're driving to South Dakota. Correct. And also there is a youth opener that actually starts this coming Hmm. weekend, September 30th, and runs through October 8th. So um, increased opportunities for youth across the state there. So, But, yeah, it uh, should be another great fall shaping up to – be just in line if not maybe even better than last year so we too had a tough winter in some spots where um, even some of the best habitat out there was covered up and uh, you really saw birds out on the search you know digging for waste grain but uh, again as has been touched on over and over in the call pheasants are an extremely resilient bird and it's pretty incredible what they can withstand and get through so this spring we were pleasantly surprised with the amount of birds that we are seeing across the landscape and again as previously mentioned that moisture was crucial to get a good start for the habitat so um we did kind of jump straight from winter into summer this spring in some areas there was still snow cover in the mid uh, late april and then in early May, it did jump up right away into the 90s in some areas. So soil temps kind of uh, went zero to 90 there pretty quick. But uh, yeah, overall habitat conditions across the state, um, they took off and did well in some areas of the state, especially along the far eastern edge and the southeast corner. We did have uh, pretty dry conditions where um emergency hanging grazing did come up. So that'll be one thing I touch on later to make sure, you know, when you're going out and checking out these public areas that, uh, or public access uh, for the walk-in, some of the areas might be haids. So uh, keep that in mind that uh, just because they were great spots um, previously, that that cover might not be there this year because of the emergency hanging grazing, um, which isn't ideal, but uh, it's just kind of all part of it. So that's a really good and important point particularly it's the southeastern part of the state that people that are heading to that let's say yankton area that you got to be aware that some of the 
uh, walk-in areas, you know, that you've been used to hunting, you might roll up to and they're pool tables. So as much as you can call ahead of time and get some local intel, that would be to your advantage. If you're going to, say, Brown County, Aberdeen, or, um, you know, well, give me some other community, Huron, you're probably not going to deal with that as much. It's really focused in the southeast, right? Correct. Yep. That, that Southeast corner really, really got hit. And actually across the rest of the state, we kind of looked okay. And especially, um, along the Missouri river corridor, we did pretty well with rains and actually in far Western South Dakota, um, we kind of flipped the script. Mm. So it's been, it had been dry out here for a few years running. And now this year, um, like especially around, uh, the Black Hills and the foothills going on to the prairie, there are some areas that's like 500% of the average rainfall. So uh, really good sharp tail conditions. And from what I'm hearing from early reports out, uh, there's sharp tails mm-hmm. everywhere. So uh, I got a text this morning from Marilyn Vetter, president and CEO. She's in the Fort Pier grasslands right now. Uh, tremendous reports on chickens and sharp tails. Um, her and Clyde, her husband, have been going there for decades, and um, she said never seen as many hunters, and never seen as many rattlesnakes. So he said there's rattlesnakes on every hill. Um, so a couple things to keep in mind: be you know, be courteous and be safe with that many hunters, and then be snake aware because that can change um, change a hunt in an instant. Um, but to your point. Everybody that I've talked to on any of the national grasslands, whether that's um, the Fort Pier, the Grand River, or the Little Missouri um, in North, they, there's sharp tails. There's sharp tails everywhere this year. It's a wonderful year for prairie grouse. One of the uh, reasons I think South Dakota maybe is a little more sought after as compared to a few of our neighboring states. Again, no discredit to them, but uh, just is that mixed bag opportunity. So it's uh, certainly within the realm of possibility that a um, sportsman and women could uh, set out and find themselves in the middle of some sharp tails and chickens and pheasants all on the same day. So as well as, you know, your kind of opportunistic uh, partridge as well so i've heard some pretty good reports on them as well um and again the the opportunity overall across the state that's where we really tout the number of acres and not only just the acres but uh you know we got some programs here in the work targeting some really quality public Mm -hmm. access um again public access on some private lands so yeah I, i think we can kind of anticipate similar numbers to last year uh again uh, to echo that, it was uh, like 1.15 million birds were harvested across South Dakota last year. And with a lot of those frequent snowstorms, especially at the end of the year, um, you know, sportsmen and women across the state kind of lost out on upwards of a month of access, mm. you know, <clears throat> because of those heavy snowstorms. So it's, uh, I'm pretty interested to see how the numbers will turn out this year. Cause, um, if we can just avoid those huge snowstorms that keep, uh, keeps folks and birds locked down, um, could even have even better numbers. So that's where we're, we're awfully optimistic and, uh, yeah, hopefully, um, it'll be pretty easy to tout that, uh, title again <laughs> next year. So, <laughs> well, you bring up something that is unique in South Dakota. I think it's probably three years running now that um, the state has extended the season through the month of January. What's the overall impression that game and fishing parks and folks in South Dakota, are they happy with that extended season? Yeah, I think overall folks are happy about it um, right away, just like anything else. Um, Folks were a little resistant to change as uh, we can often be. But uh, yeah, the increased hunting opportunities, I think folks are overall excited about and really diving into an understanding, you know, population dynamics where um, that extended season really isn't having any impact on your hens, you know, because we do not harvest hens here. So um, taking a few more roosters out that probably would have died as um, compensatory mortality as it is uh folks 
are, uh, are really getting behind it. So, and again, that's more opportunities for folks to be coming to the small towns in South Dakota and, you know, staying in the hotels and eating in the diners and buying stuff at the hardware stores. So it's just great overall for the overall economy of South Dakota as well with increased hunting opportunities. All right. So South Dakota, as I mentioned a couple times, is one of those states that the majority of the banquets um, happen in the fall in conjunction with season openers where there, you know, there's probably, I don't know. Well, you tell, you tell me how many on opening weekend alone, like there's huge opportunity for non-resident hunters to go be a part of the celebration at a pheasants forever banquet and also share some Intel about what they're seeing out in the field. Um, give us a couple of hit lists of banquets that are happening in open, um, opening month. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, Actually, starting uh, the resident-only opener, um, Lincoln County is having their banquet that day on the 14th. And then, yeah, moving into opening weekend, there is a total of seven banquets happening. So about 20% of our 35 chapters in the state are having their banquet that uh, that Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So Thursday the 19th is in uh, Pier, Fort Pier Banquet. And then that Friday the night before is Mitchell, Huron, Falkton and Wessington and Mitchell it's probably pushes for one of the larger banquets in the country so there's years they have right around or over 700 people in the door it is so that at the court really, palace yeah yes yep yep world's only so, <laughs> so you want to go to a pheasants forever banquet in the corn palace go to Mitchell at Wessington Springs I've been to that banquet the night before the opener uh, Darwin who's a frequent listener saying hello to Darwin out there in, in Wessington Springs, a chapter volunteer. Uh, but uh, sorry to cut you off, Matt. There's, you're going to mention a few others. Yeah. Um, and then that Saturday we have uh, Platt and Lemon. So even in the far northwest mm-hmm. corner of the state, uh, putting on banquets and, yeah, encouraging uh, both resident and non-resident hunters that are in areas to get there. So. Yeah, again, making sure got that full list. So Fort Pier and Pier on Thursday the 19th. Friday the 20th is Mitchell, Huron, Falkton, and Washington Springs. And then Saturday the 21st is Platt and Lemon. And then the second weekend, Winter, also has one there in south-central South Dakota. So, yeah, lots of opportunities there in that uh first couple weeks of the season to make it to banquets here in South Dakota. Yeah, shout out to Riley, uh, chapter volunteer in Lemon, who's a frequent listener as well. So lots of good friends in South Dakota volunteering, and uh, um, we won't we won't tell anybody, Riley, how many birds are in your neck of the woods. I won't share how many text messages I get of broods. <laughs> uh, good people out there. All right, so as we round out, the podcast and um, um, close this one up on the preview edition of the early pheasant hunting openers. I prepped our crew here with a simple question. Give, give our listeners one hack or one insider's tip for a person that's traveling to hunt your home state. Um, so we got, uh, we got Renee Tanner and, and Matt, ready to roll for if somebody's listening and heading to that state, they're going to give you a tip for maybe figuring out something that I'll put an extra bird in the bag. And we'll start with Renee. Somebody's going to North Dakota. What's your hack for them? So I've already noticed it so far with grouse season, but it makes sense to seek out areas with lots of public access acres on the map, on Onyx, if you're like me. But that's also where you're going to find the greatest number of hunters and pressured birds. And so I encourage you to go off the beaten path a little bit, maybe even seek out smaller parcels that are landlocked around them by uh, posted land or are just a little bit out of the ways of high concentrations of public access. And you uh, you can probably fare a little bit better. I've been noticing it a lot already with grouse out here. Um, and then I'll also follow that up with, it's a good idea for anyone who hunts plots land out here in North Dakota, but especially if you're traveling from out of state and setting out on any of our plots acres, which is just shy of 800,000 acres out here, 
I encourage you to kick in a few bucks where possible to help support our public access so that we can continue adding acres to that program for years to come. Yeah, that's a great reminder. I, I did that when I signed up for my uh, license this year. I think it's, it's, they asked for like three or five bucks. It's really relatively minimal. But as you mentioned, 800,000 acres of opportunity. Just, I mean, it's a couple bucks to help open up um, hundreds of thousands of acres and make it a little bit of a sweetened deal for that landowner. So that's a really good reminder, Renee. Thank you. Uh, we'll bounce to, to Tanner. What's your, uh, what's your 10,000 lakes hack, Tanner? Um, Renee kind of stole a little bit of mine, um, but kind of down the same path. Uh, a lot of what I do is I look at aerial imagery, uh, for me personally, Onyx as well. And not only considering, you know, what public land, what the public acre, what the WMA, what the WPA is, but what does the surrounding landscape look like? You can generally tell just through aerial imagery if there's grass, mm. if there's pasture, if there's other habitat in proximity. Uh, and that has usually led me to some success, especially with more isolated, smaller chunks of public land. Uh, just knowing that there's tons of other habitat around uh, has usually led to success and, and probably thrown another bird in the bag. Cool. In addition, you know, I would say, you know, if you are traveling to Minnesota or you're in Minnesota traveling to other parts of the state, uh, Matt kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but looking at the economic benefit, uh, please support that community you're going to get gas there, get snacks, go out to eat, wear your blaze orange proudly uh, to make sure that they know you're visiting there and you're enjoying you're enjoying our wild places in that area. It's always a fail safe that you're going to get a good meal if you order the hot beef commercial. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. If, if you yes. don't know what a hot beef commercial is, it's just, it's a hot beef sandwich or open face, hot beef, slow cooked, tons of gravy on on bread with mashed potatoes. I mean, it's comfort food, but you're going to bust. You will not leave hungry. You're not going to leave hungry. You're going to bust your tail all day long. Just indulge in it's going to warm you up like wearing a sweater on the inside. It's, it's, uh, it's right. <laughs> it, it, people are like a hot beef. What? I ordered what? Honest to God. On the way to the um, Howard Vincent um dedication in Jackson there's a little family diner that I I stopped to have lunch and prepare my notes and right on the on the menu like the special of the day was the hot beef commercial I said hunting season is here I'm gonna have a hot beef commercial <laughs> I like uh, it all right Matt uh, tell us a South Dakota hack okay yeah, falling right in line with uh, what's been been mentioned already. It's uh, you know kind of doing your legwork ahead of time and and uh, doing that scouting. And as I mentioned, with uh, uh, unfortunately some drought conditions here in the state, that is going to impact some acres. So um, if you get uh, your honey hole and uh, unfortunately it's been hayed, as I mentioned, there's a lot of opportunities here in the state. So put on a few more miles and. Um, go around the corner and find another spot. So again, with over, or just under 1.5 million acres of walk-in alone, in addition to waterfall production areas and game production areas, um, there's plenty of opportunities here in the state. So put on a few more miles on your boots and on your, uh, on your vehicles and just find those, uh, those other spots that are standing because where there is cover, there should be good birds this year with the number of broods and, uh, uh, even sizes of broods yeah. we're here in this year are, are doing yeah. doing phenomenal. So um, the other thing is don't uh, yeah don't overlook those small acreages just because it's not a full section of uh, standing grass doesn't mean you know you can't find a wily rooster or two hanging in the corner. So finish uh, finish the walks all the way to the end. Too, <laughs> <'cause> <laughs> those, those birds will hold, hold in the corners more than uh, more than you might think. That's a great one, and it's come up before, but um, that's a really great reminder to walk to the corner. Make sure you finish it out. I also think, and I'm sure every listener picked up on this, all three of you pointed to the smaller parcels with little less traffic. So um, I don't need to emphasize that anymore because <laughs> all three of you um, pointed listeners to think about that. 
it has been great. Thank you all very much, Renee Tamala, Tanner Bruce, Matt Golub. Really appreciate you um, sharing the secrets of North Dakota, Minnesota, and South Dakota. The season is upon us. If you're listening to this, the season's open in a couple states. Um, so thank you very much for listening. Um, I'll give you my hack as my closing thought. Always follow the dog. Something good will rise, especially on opening day. Opening days are special. Get out there and enjoy them. Thanks for listening, folks.